A reminder, spoiler specials are intended to be enjoyed after you've seen the movie in question. If you haven't seen it yet, be warned that we will be discussing key plot points, twists, and other surprises. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with a Slate spoiler special podcast on Toy Story 3. Joining me from our Washington, D.C. studio is Dan Coyce. Hello, Dan. Hey, Dana. Who is a film critic at the Washington Post, The Village Voice, Lant. Is there any place else you're writing for these days, Dan? Um, well, you know, Slate and uh, Vulture and New York Magazine. Really, whoever will, whoever will pay me money. Who are you writing on Toy Story 3 for? Um, I'm doing something for Slate. Oh, excellent. Is it going to be a slideshow? It, it is. It is. Sweet. What's the subject of the slideshow? Um, it's about the career, uh, the Pixar career of John Ratzenberger. Oh, that's right. I heard about this. This is going to be great because Ratzenberger has appeared in every Pixar movie in, in some capacity as a voice actor. That's right. right. From big roles like um, Ham, the, the piggy bank in this one, to tiny roles like The Undertaker, that villain who shows up in the last minute of The Incredibles. So essentially, he's like it's the Alfred Hitchcock cameo that you wait for in every Pixar movie. Right, and we should right. mention, in case anybody doesn't know who John Ratzenberger is, that he was Cliff Clavin on Cheers. Right. So oh, great. I look forward to seeing that. So I did not see Toy Story with you. We both saw it yesterday, I believe. And uh, I wanted to start off by not exactly spoiling the ending, but spoiling uh, our emotional reaction to the ending. Um, I saw the movie with John Swansburg, an editor at Slate. And both of us spent the last 15 minutes of the movie weeping audibly. And I wanted to know whether you did the same. And if so, at what point your your tears kicked in? Uh, yes. Uh, I saw it with my wife in Washington. And both of us and everyone around us also cried all the way through the last 15 minutes of the ending. And it kicked in basically as soon as, and here we will spoil the ending, as soon as Andy, um, the day before he leaves for college, stops in front of a little girl's house with a big box full of all his old toys and kneels down in front of her and starts introducing them one by one as he gives them over to her. That was definitely part of the of the weeping for me, but I actually started well before that. I really? think I started choking up when Andy goes in to survey his room as he's just packed up and his mother comes in and realizes he's leaving for college and she kind of chokes up. Oh, I'm yeah. not sure whether before I had a child that scene would have choked me up, but I identified with the mother then and then started to identify with Andy as soon as he you know, realized that it was time to give up his toys. Right. Well, that's yeah, I, I think that's when my wife started crying. For For me, it was when we started getting one by one final curtain calls for each of the toys as each one was described by Andy to the little girl for all their most wonderful qualities, the qualities that we associated with their animate characters, even though Andy had never actually met those characters. It's a brilliant ending. Well, I mean, I guess you can probably tell from our our glowing kickoff, but I basically thought Toy Story 3 was perfect. It's almost not really fun to review it or spoil it because I just want to tell people, go see it. It's it's great. Right. Uh, That would be my overall message, too, is it is amazing and you should go see it right now. It's so surprising in the case of a part three of a, of a series. I really can't think of that many franchises where the third chapter is really, really up to snuff. I mean, I actually, I haven't seen Toy Story 1 and 2 in a while. I know I love them both, but I almost think that this is completely up to the standard of either one and that they feel like three perfect, complete chapters of a story that's now done. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, I think the third Lord of the Rings movie was really great, though not quite as great as the second But yes, I can't think of a third movie in a trilogy that has knocked it out of the park the way that this one does. The Lord of the Rings is an interesting exception to the the rule of decline, you know, the rate of decline in in series, because it really was one movie that was all shot at once and wasn't returned to. I mean, there was clearly a moment in Pixar that they were sitting around saying, let's revisit Toy Story. And what's really great and what I really respect about this movie and about Pixar in general is that they didn't do that. I mean, obviously, financial considerations would have come in because Toy Story is a huge franchise, and I have a feeling this will be the success of the summer. But 
it really feels like so much care and conviction and love went into the making of this movie. They were absolutely faithful to the stories and the characters of the two previous movies. And to me, there was no sense at all that they were kind of milking the franchise. Right. I mean, obviously, it's a it's a good idea financially to make a third Toy Story movie, but it would have been a much better idea to make it 10 years ago. Um, Is it 10 years now since the second Toy Story? It, the first one was 15 years ago, and the second one was, I believe, about five years after that, yes. Wow, that's a very long stretch between yeah. installments, all right? Yeah. I mean, basically, the kids who were Andy's age when the first one came out are now done with college themselves. Right, right. Yes, well, that's, of course, the most depressing aspect of it for old people like us is that Disney is marketing Toy Story 3 to kids in college because they were Andy's age when the first Toy Story came out, whereas we were grown-ups and now we're old people. Right. (laughs) Well, they really can rope in a massive demographic at this point with this movie. I know when I was seeing it, I thought, well, I really wish I brought my four-year-old. She would definitely love it. I'm definitely going to take her to see it. And I think everyone in my age cohort who likes movies would love it. But I would also tell my parents to go see it. I would really encourage my two 70-plus-year-old parents to see it, and I think they'd love it. Yes, I would say that's correct. So let's go over the story a little bit, what happens at the beginning. So we start off, as both the first two Toy Story movies did, with a basically a, a, a playing dream sequence. It's a right. huge outscale kind of action set piece that is actually going on in Andy's imagination as he plays with his toys as a boy. Right, with Sheriff Woody and um, Jesse, his sidekick, saving a train full of orphan troll dolls from the dastardly, what's his name? Ham with an eye patch. The, the piggy bank. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyways, so... Uh, oh, yeah, what do they call him? The evil Dr. Porkchop. Yes, evil Dr. Porkchop. But yeah, so anyways, it's all the toys that we've grown to know and love through the first two movies uh, playing out a huge action adventure. And we then see that it is a play fantasy of Andy's, one of the many, many times that he played with his toys that was later ca- that we see captured on video by his mom, which then turns into sort of the Pixar signature montage of time passing as we see Andy growing up through video um, until we come to the present day when the toys live in a toy chest in Andy's room and Andy's about to leave for college and he hasn't played with them in a long time and they're launching various schemes in an attempt to get him to play with them but they all fail because he's 18 and he doesn't want to play with them anymore but he still obviously feels an emotional attachment to them as we see when his mom makes him clean out his room and he decides not to throw away his favorite toys, the ones that have lasted through the years, um, but instead to put them up in the attic, with the exception of Woody, who he decides to take with him up to college. But his mom doesn't realize that. She throws the bag of all the other toys out by the curb. Woody helps to rescue them, but sort of hurt by that rigid, by that perceived rejection by Andy, the rest of the toys besides Woody decide that the best course for them is to uh, be donated to a local daycare center. And so the majority of the movie takes place in that daycare center, um, Sunnyside. Sunnyside? Sunnyville? I don't remember. Sunnydale? It's Sunnydale is um, the town over the Hellmouth in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, so it's not that. <laughs> That's where that came from. Uh, I think maybe Sunnyville is right. There's a really good gag, just a kind of musical gag when we first see whatever it is, Sunny something daycare center, because of course it's a kid's daycare center painted with rainbows and it's this sort of sunny, beautiful, colorful place. But there's this horror, horror movie music playing as they first look at it and <laughs> right. we just know that there's nothing good going on in Sunnyville. But so the, the rest of the toys arrive there while Woody sets off to try and get back to Andy because he knows he's bound for college and he feels still feels devoted to Andy. But the rest of the toys end up at the daycare center, which is presented to them by the toys who live there as a kind of... Uh, a toy retirement home. 
a wonderful place where toys are played with forever by a constantly refreshing stream of respectful children. And there are perks for toys who need them and a repair shop for toys who have problems. And they're introduced to all this by one of the new characters in the movie, uh, Lotso Huggin' Bear, Lotso, with the voice of Ned. He's a strawberry-scented pink plush bear, right? He couldn't be more adorable in first sight. Right. He's basically a fake Care Bear, um, but even cuter, voiced by Ned Beatty. And he presents the daycare center to them as this wonderland, and all the toys get very excited. But then it turns out that it's all sort of a prison camp for toys in which the new arrivals are shunted off to the like the twos room the room full of two-year-olds and little toddlers who aren't good at playing with toys and who just throw them around and and cover them in paint and break them and destroy them there's a really imaginative long action sequence where basically the, the producers just imagine every possible way a toy could be abused and subject all our familiar toys to that it's pretty great right and it's sort of horrific in a way because these our friends, the toys, have dreamed of being played with for years and have viewed this as their chance. And they are welcoming these kids with open arms, but the kids just destroy them. I mean, they rip Rex's tail off and dip Jesse's pigtails in paint. And there's a great point of view shot from a Buzz Lightyear as he just gets inserted whole into a child's mouth. <laughs> And, and the potato head eye goes into a kid's nostril. Right. There's some there's some really good gags. And but so anyways, they realize that they've been basically placed in a prison in which the only way to make it to the room with the kids who play peacefully with toys the way they want to be played with the the age appropriate children for the toys that they are is to survive the gauntlet of uh, these toddlers who abuse them for for however long it takes to make it through and that Lotso is really sort of a fascist dictator in charge of this entire prison camp and so a plan is launched to escape and uh, to spoil obviously further the plan succeeds and in wildly imaginative fashion. Yeah, it's like a heist movie. I love how all the details work out in that plan. It made me realize that many adult non-animated action movies of the past year have had sort of escape sequences or heist sequences that are nowhere near as detailed and clever as the one in Toy Story 3. Oh, yeah. Well, I thought really honestly it was the, the best escape sequence I'd seen since. What do you? What's your guess? Oh, I don't know. Is it something recent? Uh, no, it's Chicken Run, the last animated movie to have an enormous <laughs> escape sequence. And it's, it is totally imaginative and hilarious and utilizes all the characters' strengths and all the details we've already learned about the place they're escaping from in fascinating and surprising ways. But uh, they escape only to end up thrown in a dumpster at the last minute by Lotso. And the dumpster, I have something to say about the dumpster scene, actually. There's, it's, or it's more than just a scene. It's, it's quite a long action sequence with, with several different parts in which they're sort of going down this long conveyor belt full of garbage, and the garbage gets shredded. They escape the garbage in this really clever way by grabbing onto metal objects in the, in the dump that pull them up to this magnetized ceiling. Right. I have no idea whether those kind of machines would actually have a magnetized ceiling, but it was, it was a very clever gag. And... The, the, the visuals of that whole part of the dump scene just seemed very Wally influenced to me. It was like a moment when Toy Story met Wally, when the bright primary colors and the joyful palette of Toy Story met this kind of post-apocalyptic garbage dump of Wally, and right. it was just—it was such a great visual combination. Well, and it's very existential for on the part of these toys, and the series has gotten sort of weirdly more and more existential as it's gone oh, absolutely. on. And these... the emotional questions that this this chapter is dealing with of Toy Story are huge. It's a, basically aging, death, the loss of love. I mean, these toys are facing some serious, serious questions. Right. And I, and I mean, to spoil further, I cannot imagine 
that there will ever be another children's movie or that there has ever been a children's movie in which all our heroes um, take each other's hand and close their eyes in anticipation of certain death and and acceptance of of the certain death that awaits them. I mean, because at, at some point in this uh, ordeal in the dump, um, they end up in the incinerator room falling, sliding down a, a belt toward the immensely hot, hellish incinerator. And as they realize there's no other way for them to escape, they look at each other, they grab each other's hands, they give each other last meaningful looks, and they close their eyes in anticipation of the death to come. And it is, I mean, it is a, it is an agonizing scene to watch. And obviously... Do you think it's too intense for kids or for young kids? I wondered that when I was watching it because I would so love my daughter to see this, but she might be really freaked out by the idea of all your loved ones being sucked into a hellish spiral. Uh, I mean, it is is like the... I mean, it's like the, the Divine Comedy... It's like the Inferno, but like real with these characters who we love. And I, I, it's definitely too intense for my kid, but she's a scaredy cat. I think that other kids will be able to handle it. I think if you set, if you, especially if you warn them that that part is coming in, in advance. And that everything t- turns out okay. Right. And that everything turns out okay. I so think the way everything okay. turns out okay is a great gag, too, if you've watched the previous two Toy Stories. Um, there's this moment, just as they are about to, to go fall into Dante's Inferno, when a big claw comes down to get them right a huge sort of um i guess you would really call it a claw like a, garbage, a metal yeah a garbage um, scooping claw right and pulls them up along with a big heap of garbage pulls them out and dumps them to safety and then we cut to the uh, control room where the claw is being operated by i don't know what those guys are called but the, the three little outer space guys with right. with three eyes For the pizza planet three-eyed aliens who have worshipped the claw since the first movie uh and who have finally been given the opportunity to become gods themselves and in a awesome deus ex machina moment they grab our friends from the mouth of the incinerator and deposit them in safety and this all leads up to the denouement that we were talking about the one that made us cry so much in which they all return back to andy and he greets them joyfully his mother tears up at the idea of him going off to college when she sees his empty room and Woody comes up with the idea of having Andy donate all the toys to a little girl that Woody met on his adventures who's desperate for more toys and who is great at playing with them. And Andy takes all the toys, including Woody, in a box to this little girl. He gives them each their own little curtain call moment. And this actually, the ending of the movie actually reminded me in a way of the multiple endings of um, The Return of the King, of the last Lord of the Rings movie, and that each character got his own little spotlight his own little moment in the spotlight in which Andy, the person, the boy each of these toys has loved forever, talks about how much that that toy meant to him, presents him to the little girl, and then plays with them one last time with her. And it's, I mean, it's heartrending. Can scene. I just tell you, I'm literally tearing up in the studio right <laughs> so now just I. hearing you describe it. I assume our engineer is too. We're describing it so beautifully. <laughs> Because it's quite a long play sequence that they have, actually. He introduces the toys one by one, and that's really great. And then there's kind of a long montage of him and the girl playing on the very day that he's about to get in his car and drive off to college. It's Mm -hmm. like he's going to have his last kind of revisiting of what a childhood playtime is like. And that is just so wonderfully done. Also, the little girl, although she's a minor character in the movie, Bonnie, the little girl he gives the toys to, Mm -hmm. is a great character. And she's she's really established as a different kind of kid. Right, than Andy was. She's right. super imaginative and plays these weird pretend games with them. And there's this hilarious conceit that because she plays pretend games with her animals and makes them into different characters, that they're all actors and they pride themselves on their improvisational skills. And that works really well, too. Right. Her, to her toys, who we meet briefly, consider themselves sort of a troop of 
of seasoned acting vets uh, who who get into their roles. Um, and so we get, you know, Timothy Dalton as the voice of um, Mr. Pricklepants, a hedgehog in Lederhosen. Um, He's very who, proud of his thespian skills. Right. And so it's the, it's the, it is really, I can't imagine a more perfect, bittersweet, but wonderful ending for the series to have these toys get a new owner, to have them all stay together as friends, um, to be played with once again, but also get one last chance to play with Andy and to be appreciated and, and thanked really by Andy for all that they have given to him. And so the idea that I'm sitting in a movie theater crying about some toys <laughs> is crazy, but because Pixar is Pixar, it happens and it happened to everyone yeah, in that theater. You're right. It's because it's, it's that Pixar thing that they can do that is almost like the, the chemical in onions that makes you cry or something. <laughs> you cannot resist it. It's the complete equivalent. The end, the last 15 minutes or so of this movie are the complete equivalent of that montage at the beginning of Up that made every single person who saw it start yes. crying. Yes. Even Except that in a way was an even more amazing feat because you didn't know those characters yet. It was the very beginning of, of the first movie or presumably the only Up. Right. And so that was really almost a, a, a strange kind of alchemy of some kind that they performed right but pixar has done something pretty amazing which is make the third movie in a series that i think is maybe better than the first two okay dan let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor audible.com which as listeners know is the sponsor of slate podcasts and is a great source for over seventy-five thousand different uh, audio titles online our recommendation for this week in keeping with the theme of toy story that made us cry for 15 minutes at the end is the velveteen rabbit which is a classic children's story about a rabbit who, somewhat like Woody, is abandoned by his by his boy. Not because the boy grows up in that case, but because he, he loses him. And uh, it's it's another beautiful, beautiful tearjerker and a classic. And Audible has it read by uh, Meryl Streep. And so if you want to go get the Velveteen Rabbit, you can sign up through our website, which is www.audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. And when you sign up through that site, you get a free book, which you get to keep even if you decide not to stay with your subscription after the 14-day trial period. So give it a look. So the story of the Velveteen Rabbit is actually sort of a a good version or a kind-hearted version of of the backstory that we eventually get for Lotso Hug and Bear, the villain of the piece, who also is lost by his owner, a little girl he loves very much. And Lotso, along with a couple of friends, treks for and were meant to believe for weeks or months through the wilderness trying to return to his little girl. And when he gets there, discovers that her parents have bought her a new Lotso Hug and Bear. And this curdles his emotions to such an extent that he turns into the petty dictator of Sunnyside or Sunnydale or Sunnyville daycare center. It's a great backstory for a villain. I mean, and, and you know, I had sort of thought that Pixar had run out of ways to to explore this notion of the relationship that a child has with his toy or that a toy has with his child, but they haven't. And, and this, yeah, it's true. They hadn't done replacement yet. Right. And so the idea that this is what would make a toy turn bad is a genius idea and totally believable in this world. It's such a funny flashback too, as narrated by this bitter clown who right. was also <laughs> lost by the little girl at the same time. So he lived through this, this whole ordeal with lots of bear. And it's just a really, really funny moment where we cut to this clown on a windowsill looking out the window saying, yeah, I knew Lotso Bear, and then right. we get the flashback. You almost imagine him having a cigarette. In general, you know, I, I really wanted to say that the com- the complexity of the villains in this movie is quite impressive. I mean, very few children's or adult movies have villains that, that get this number of chances to redeem themselves, but don't always redeem themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, the other sort of big bad guy besides Lotso Bear is one of Lotso Bear's right-hand men, which is a Ken doll, 
and uh, and Ken is a really incredible character too, who gets so many chances to to strut his stuff literally and figuratively. I wanted you to talk about Barbie and Ken because I know you were really impressed by the uh, the portrait of gender that comes out in the Barbie Ken relationship. It's sort of fascinating. I mean, the, the old joke about Ken always has been that he is gay, right? Because he's a clothes horse and he has like that sculpted 80s hair and he uh, the ascots and, and the ascots and he's manscaped, which would have been, a, uh, I think, a fascinating way for this movie to take the Ken character. But they instead took it in an even more interesting way, which is that Ken is just is just basically a straight clothes horse. He loves he and Barbie fall in love immediately upon seeing each other. And they spend the rest of the movie having a charged up and down relationship as she feels torn between loyalty to her friends and the soulmate who has obviously been made for her, as they say. But Ken is a guy who loves clothes, who can't stop trying them on. Who, is, who lives in a lavender and yellow dream house. Right, and who is a, who is a, just obviously effeminate, but also doggedly straight and in the end brave. And he stands up in the end for Barbie, the woman that he loves, um, against Lotso, Hug, and Bear at the risk of his life, and is redeemed in the end in a totally interesting way. And there's... Uh, but but all the way through, the flamboyance of Ken is played for fantastic laughs, but totally non-offensive laughs, you know, to the point that when Barbie poses as Ken hiding in the Ken astronaut suit in an attempt to infiltrate uh, the enemy camp, one of the other characters, one of the bad guys, sees underneath the astronaut suit her high heels and instead of raising the alarm because he realizes that that's not really Ken he just shakes his head exasperatedly because he can't believe that once again Ken is wearing yeah, something ridiculous. Yeah, what outfit is he going to come up with next? Right. Uh, and it's just a great moment and one of a number of great moments involving this total, what could have been a totally throwaway character. But once again it's he's a villain who is made real and interesting and fascinating by this movie and I can't imagine uh, another children's movie having such a great, honestly, examination of gender fluidity. Like, I say that sort of half-jokingly, but also half-not-jokingly. Like, it's a really interesting thing to have in, the, in a movie like this. All right. Well, Dan, thank you for coming in to, to weep and, and rant and rave about <laughs> the, uh, the beauty of the new Toy Story with me. My pleasure. Thank you. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens.